we're going to continue our focus on the applications and of combs and um, potential applications. And we have another uh, talk in this theme looking at uh, the kind of the practical issues of deploying optical technology into space. And so our speaker is Mike Shao, and uh, Mike is the principal research scientist in JPL Science Division. And uh, it's a great pleasure to have him here today. Uh, he's an expert in long baseline interferometry, and he's been involved in many of the systems, the big systems that, that we've read about, uh, including Mount Wilson, 120 meter baseline interferometer at Palomar, um, the linking of the two Keck telescopes on Mauna Kea, and then also the technology development for the SIM mission, the space interferometer uh, mission. Um, Mike's current interests uh, uh, include actually detecting small, fast uh, moving near Earth asteroids uh, from ground and space uh, using CubeSats, and uh, also the application of uh, high power lasers for ranging of orbital uh, bodies. And so please join me in welcoming Mike. So uh, I'll be talking about uh, uh, giving a couple more examples uh, similar to the last talk on, on how to make uh, things uh, uh, work in space. And um, so basically uh, I'll talk about a couple of uh, uh, experiments that, uh, uh, that we did. Uh, one is a, um, uh, is a uh, nulling coronagraph on a sounding rocket. And so what you heard from Carl uh, was that sounding rockets uh, uh, allow th those projects allow high risk, and so uh, and so you know uh, we'll we'll show you what some of the risks were, and um, and of course uh, what's needed for uh, for an interferometer is uh, precision alignment, uh, thermal stability, and of course uh, a surviving launch, and then uh, I'll talk a little bit about the second topic, which is uh, basically uh, uh, you know. Uh, uh, the lifetime of a of a, uh, a uh, NPRO laser uh, that uh, that would uh, that was to have been used on SIM, uh, it has a, uh, since that was the class AB mission, it has a very high uh, uh, standard for reliability, and uh, we'll talk about using redundancy uh, in, in the pump system to uh, to achieve high reliability. So. Um, so talking uh, about the, uh, the optical uh, assemblies in space, basically uh, the, this particular uh, mission was a, a nulling interferometer. The idea, of course, is that the interferometer uh, would null out the starlight so that you can see uh, faint objects around it. Uh, and, um, and of course, uh, what was needed uh, was, uh, we, what we wanted uh, was something that was very thermally stable. Uh, the whole assembly should be no worse than something, no worse than twice uh, as bad as an optical bench made entirely uh, out of ULE. And so, uh, and then of course that uh, unit would be mounted behind a, a 50 centimeter telescope. Uh, and, um, and, and of course uh, it has to be mounted in a way so that, uh, so when the temperature changes, uh, it doesn't warp the optical bench. And, uh, and of course, uh, what was uh, turned out to, the, to be the most challenging part of this was making the whole optical assembly survive uh, launch loads. Uh, actually, it's 12 Gs, uh, not 20 Gs, uh, random vibration uh, bet uh, you know, between a few hertz and a kilohertz. And, uh, and of course, the sounding rocket is, um, is a pretty, uh, 
pretty rough ride into space. Uh, you also, in addition, have 9 Gs of static uh, uh, acceleration at the, at the maximum. And, um, and so uh, the other part of, of optical assemblies in space is that there are no micrometer knobs to adjust. And so everything has to be uh, uh, you know, um, solid without adjustment. So uh, what I'm talking about, actually a 60 centimeter telescope, but only the central 50 centimeters is used. Uh, so this is sort of the uh, uh, sort of a drawing of the whole payload. Um, you know, the, the, uh, it's pointed down during launch um, in order to keep um, uh, basically, um, so the telescope and then the, uh, uh, the nulling interferometer is in the back of it here, and I'll talk mostly about that. And um, uh, in order to keep uh, the, the sounding rocket basically go, goes up and you have somewhere between five and 10 minutes uh, uh, above the atmosphere. And so uh, you have very little time. Uh, and so in order to, uh, to keep the, um, the thermal stability of the telescope, uh, uh, basically, uh, so that, uh, well, the problem is that when you open up the, uh, the, the door, you're now looking at three degree space and so uh, that's cold, everything radiates out. And so the way uh, we, we tried to get around part of that anyway was that the mirror cover uh, was uh, cooled to 77 Kelvin uh, uh, at launch. And then of course the uh, nitrogen was disconnected and then it went up. And so when the mirror, came, um, mirror cover came off, uh, essentially we were going from 77 Kelvin to three Kelvin rather than from 300 Kelvin. And so, uh, so that helped uh, stabilize the telescope uh, the, um, uh, and then, of course, there were, there, there were heaters and so forth uh, to, uh, uh, to, um, to, to keep the, uh, the, the, the instrument payload uh, at, at a constant temperature. And so um, uh, in order to keep everything, uh, in order to keep the instrument stable, uh, we decided to build the interferometer as a glass sandwich. And, uh, uh, and I'll, I'll show you what, what, what I mean by that. And so uh, this is not a glass sandwich. This is the, the SIM uh, in, uh, beam combiner interferometer. And what you see is that um, uh, the, um, uh, the, the objects are mounted on, a, on an aluminum structure. And um, this was a brass board unit that, was, that actually went through uh, flight qualification testing. And, um, uh, and basically, uh, you, can, it's, you can see it's fairly complicated. There are a lot of optical components in it. Uh, the, the, the structure, basically, the, the way JPL likes to do this, and it's moderately expensive, is that you start off with a solid piece of aluminum, and then you cut out 90% of it. And so it's, uh, it results in something that's very lightweight and very strong, but it's very time consuming and very expensive. And, uh, and typically, uh, the way the optics are mounted is using these bipods that you see, uh, you know, optical optics and optical assemblies are usually mounted using these bipods. Uh, essentially, uh, three bipods basically uh, define six degrees of freedom. And so if the, uh, if the thermal uh, uh, expansion of, the, uh, of this is different than the thing it's mounted on, uh, things will, uh, you will not distort the, uh, the optical assembly. Or distort, uh, or distort the uh, the optic, and so that's a standard uh, uh, technique for, uh, using these bipods flexures uh, for for um, uh, for mounting optics and, and optical assemblies. So, um, and of course, um, uh, this was uh, uh, this is a, a tried and true way of, of building uh, uh, fairly complicated optical assemblies. But for the sounding rocket experiment, it was a, it was also a little bit more expensive than we could afford. And um, oh, I guess. Um, the other thing that, that we have to be careful about is um, 
because the, the, these flexure assemblies are, are, you know, they're all metal and they have, um, uh, okay, well, yeah, the, um, in, in something like this where, where basically the structural assembly is made of aluminum, it has a very high CTE and the glass has very low CTE and, um, and, and it, it's not, you know, something like this uh, on SIM basically, uh, in order to keep all the optics aligned, uh, we actually, uh, there were a number of, uh, of optical elements that were on PZT tip tilt mounts and, uh, and there was also a, a, a metrology system that monitored the, uh, the alignment. And so it was actively uh, aligned uh, on, on orbit. And so that was also something that we wanted to at least partially uh, get around in, in, the, um, in the sounding rocket experiment. And so, uh, so the glass sandwich basically that we, we settled on uh, was basically to, uh, to put all of, the, all of the optics in the middle there, there would be a, uh, a half-inch thick ULE plate on the bottom and a quarter-inch thick ULE plate on top, and everything would be glued uh, between, um, you know, between the top and the bottom. And you can see there are quite a few optical elements on there. And um, uh, so, so the, the whole question, of course, is that you've got to put, uh, and of course, the, uh, since it's an interferometer, uh, the, the optical paths have to be uh, matched pretty closely. And, uh, and of course, uh, the tip and tilt uh, of all the optics had to be aligned and, and basically uh, be, um, be in the proper uh, position uh, when the glue sets. And so, um, uh, so what we decided on was that, uh, and of course, uh, was to use very thin uh, uh, epoxy bonds, basically, uh, at the top and bottom between the, uh, between the surfaces. Uh, essentially, uh, you know, we have, uh, these things are about, uh, about an inch, about 25 millimeters, and basically our feeling was that if the uh, if the um, if the bond was only 10 microns thick, uh, then um, uh, then basically there's so little epoxy that even though it has high CTE, the whole uh, the whole unit would be fairly uh, thermally stable, and that that did did turn out to be the case. Um, so um, and of course uh, the um, the major challenge uh, it turned out to be. Uh, was uh, getting a, a glass structure uh, to, to survive launch. So the way we, uh, um, we the, the approach that we use for, um, for aligning the optics was that, well, a, a typical uh, flight mount basically would have three of these bipods basically attached to the mirror, and then this would be an aluminum or titanium, uh, you know, um, uh, a mirror mount, uh, and it would be held by three flexures uh, to, to the optic. In our case, basically, uh, to align these, um, are, it's, it's actually uh, very time consuming because if, for instance, if the tip tilt is, uh, is wrong, uh, what they d did was they went in and, and they, uh, you know, by hand actually, um, basically filed the bottom of the mount so that it, it reached the, 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 um, the, the correct tilt, tilt uh, and then, you know, uh, and then tested it. Uh, and then if it didn't work, they would go back and refile. So it was a very time-consuming process. In, in our case, basically what we did was we, uh, the, the optic was placed on top. Uh, first, it, everything was um, manufactured so that it was, uh, uh, everything was manufactured so that the angles were right within a few arc seconds, maybe four or five arc seconds. And, um, and so that the, the vertical tip tilt, uh, the vertical tilt was pretty close to begin with. And then, of course, it was sitting on top of, of a 10, micron, uh, uh, 10 microns of epoxy. And so what we did was, uh, was we used a UV curing epoxy, and then we attached a rod to a PZT mount, 
and basically we, we uh, manipulated the PZT until the interferometer told us everything was properly aligned. Uh, and then we zapped the UV carrying epoxy with UV, and then uh, the, the rod was bonded to the uh, optical element with a very weak uh, adhesive, so that, that, that just broke off. And so that was basically the, the procedure that we used for, for aligning all, uh, all of the optics. Uh, and of course, that even then, it, it does take a while. Yeah, so it took, it, it took um, uh, over a month to align all the optical elements on, 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 that, uh, on that plate. So, uh, so basically, this is uh, the, um, the glass sandwich pretty much uh, assembled. Uh, it, was, uh, on, uh, you know, it was then uh, held off of aluminum uh, a, a breadboard uh, using three flexures again. And, uh, and so, um, uh, but basically, of course, uh, what we said was the, uh, the, 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 um, the, the major challenge was showing that a, a glass structure uh, can, can survive lunch loads. And uh, uh, of course, before we did this, uh, we, uh, we built some prototypes that we tested in, on, on a shake table. And I'll, I'll show you uh, what, what, we would, uh, what we did there. So, um, so it was not a full size, and of course, we didn't spend a lot of time aligning it. Basically, it was just two pieces of glass uh, uh, with some uh, uh, glass in between that we glued together. And, uh, you know, and then uh, we, put, uh, we put the whole assembly on a shake table. Uh, the, the part of the uh, sounding rocket program is that the is that the um, is that they provide these services for free, and so uh, so you can you know just ship it over to Wallops uh, in in uh, on the East Coast, and and they'll shake it for you, and um, and so uh, on 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 a project like Sim, uh, we would go through a huge uh, you know a very detailed uh, finite element model to figure out where all the residences were, and um, and we did that. But not nearly as thoroughly on a sounding rocket program, and so we knew where the uh, where the uh, the uh, the principal uh, principal uh, uh, residence was, and basically it was in the flexures, and so uh, the, the 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 flexures basically uh, bonded to the uh, uh, that that had about 140 hertz resonance. It's pretty high, so it's it's actually pretty stiff, uh, but um, uh, but but. You know, so we, we did know about that, but uh, we didn't fully, uh, w you know, without really doing everything in, in detail, uh, uh, we learned by experimental uh, uh, testing. And so, uh, so during the shake test, basically, we had two, uh, two uh, iterations of shake tests, and, um, and, we, and, and we found three major design flaws in, in, in this, and I'll, I'll talk a little bit about what they were. And uh, so this is trial and error engineering. <laughs> so, um, so this is what happened on, on one of the shake tests. Basically, um, see the um, uh, the um, although the uh, the bottom of the table was shaking uh, with 12 G's, uh, you know, random uh, between uh, uh, 10 hertz and a, and a kilohertz, uh, the accelerometers on the on on the te uh, test piece basically recorded 200 G's. And so that was basically because the resonant frequency, uh, you know, it was a high Q resonance. And so this is a common problem with using flexures uh, uh, on, on, on mounting optics, is that the flexures tend to have very high Qs. And, uh, and so it'll, um, you know, amplify the G-forces that, that the optics feel. And as you can see, in this case, it, it cracked the glass. Uh, uh, the first thing that we found was that uh, uh, was that the UV cured epoxy is not nearly as strong as the flight approved uh, uh, epoxy. 
And, uh, and so, uh, so in fact, some of the, uh, some of the pieces actually uh, delaminated. Um, uh, and uh, so basically, we, uh, uh, after that, um, we, we, we changed, uh, we had to use UV carrying epoxy in some locations because that was, that was how we aligned the optics. But there were other places that were strictly uh, structural features and, and basically there we use the flight uh, qualified epoxy. Uh, and so, um, so the other problem was that, um, uh, was the high Q of the residence. And so, uh, so we, we reduced the Q uh, uh, of, of that residence by using a thicker layer of RTV between, uh, between the flexure and the glass. And so basically that damped out, uh, that provided a damping and, uh, and basically, uh, after that, basically, the maximum g-force is around 70 g's instead of 200. And so that helped uh, a, a bit. And, uh, and then, uh, so, you know, the, the, the optics in the glass sandwich serve both uh, as, an optical, as optical elements and structural elements in terms of, you know, supporting the top plate and, and, and the bottom plate. And uh, so in addition to the optical elements, uh, we added several uh, pieces of glass that were strictly structural support that, that had no optical function. And basically that, uh, that helped basically uh, to keep the top and bottom plates uh, uh, together. And then um, the third one was uh, we, uh, we had departed from how we mounted the glass. Uh, uh, you know, in most of the glass elements were basically, you know, uh, that, that was the optical element and then there was a 10 micron epoxy bond. In one instance, basically, we, uh, we, uh, we had actually cut out the bottom of it and put the epoxy there. So in this case, of course, uh, epoxy shrinks when it cures. And so, uh, so when this cured, basically, it pulled these two pieces together. And, uh, and so in theory, this should be more thermally stable than that uh, because there's no epoxy in the way at all. The problem was that at 250 Gs, uh, it lifted off. So, uh, so basically, this thing lifted off of the, uh, it no, uh, the, the um, those points that were no longer in contact. And of course, at 140 hertz, it meant that you were hammering two pieces of glass together 140 times per second. And that, that was, and that crack basically happened after about 35 seconds of vibration. And so, uh, so we, we got rid of that and we went back to that. So those were the three design mistakes that we made. Uh, and, um, uh, and, you know, it, uh, um, so uh, of course, the, 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 those were the uh, you know the purposeful shake test. The most challenging uh, vibration and shock test was actually Federal Express. <laughs> so you, uh, so some of you may have uh, seen uh, some uh, YouTube videos of uh, people throwing large TV screens over the fence and things like that. So, so that something similar must have happened. Uh, <laughs> Uh, basically, uh, we, we had noticed that uh, the, the glass uh, sa uh, uh, sandwich was actually about, there was only about four millimeters of clearance between a, 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 an aluminum post and that glass sandwich. But they, we said, you know, this is 140 hertz resonance. You need about 200 Gs in order for those two things to touch. And of course, uh, you know, we shipped it and there was a small chip on the side when it arrived. But we basically, we decided that um, uh, so we, we actually, the, we, uh, the, the team, uh, 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 you know, uh, we spent a couple of weeks discussing it. Should we take the whole thing apart, basically polish the glass out, so, you know, to get rid of, uh, rid of the crack? And we decided that, uh, that basically it was not in a low-bearing path. Uh, you know, the crack was on, on, on the outside, 
it, it, you know, there shouldn't be any lows on it. And, um, and so we decided to just leave it in place. And fortunately, uh, you know, uh, that turned out pretty good. So, um, uh, okay, so, be, but before we get there, so basically, um, uh, we took, a, uh, again, uh, sounding rocket uh, uh, payloads uh, allow uh, you to take some risks. We had two shake tests. Uh, the, uh, the, 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 the uh, prototypes broke on both of the shake tests. And, uh, and then we made the corrections after the second one, and then it flew. Uh, the, uh, everything worked. Uh, you know, this thing uh, survived launch, and it survived the landing. Uh, however, the, the, uh, the telemetry didn't work. And so, uh, so, uh, so that didn't work out. On landing, uh, uh, the, the Nuller survived, the telescope did not survive. And uh, so, uh, but uh, what happened was that, the, well, BU was the lead institution on this. They had flown uh, uh, rockets before. I think they're, uh, they proposed and were funded for a reflight. The reflight is later on this year. And so hopefully it'll, we'll get some results from it uh, this year. So, uh, so once in space, the mechanical environment is extremely stable. Uh, and, um, and of course, uh, for things like lasers and very high, um, uh, stability clocks, uh, you might, you know, people might want to make use of that. And of course, at high frequencies or at, at tens of hertz, basically, the noise that you have on a spacecraft is stuff that you basically, that you bring up with you. Uh, and of course, uh, so something like the space station is particularly noisy uh, because you've got people in there. And, uh, and of course, this is a, you know, you can go through um, a whole range of things. Uh, for the SIM mission, basically, uh, the, a major source of, of mechanical noise on orbit, of course, are, are the reaction wheels. And uh, for, for the SIM mission, basically, uh, we, uh, we used two levels of passive isolation, and that got the vibration levels down to uh, about 10 nanometers. And so coincidentally, when we, uh, when we put the Keck interferometer, well, before we uh, started building the Keck interferometer, we put, um, we put accelerometers on the ground on top of Mauna Kea, and it, it was basically vibrating at roughly the same level, a few tens of nanometers. And so, uh, you know, seismic in environment uh, is similar to uh, on the ground, is not very different from a spacecraft if you don't do something, uh, if you don't do a lot more. There is, you know, uh, so if you want a much quieter environment than what you have in the lab, basically, uh, then, uh, then you've got to do some, uh, you know, you've got to have a non-standard spacecraft. Uh, one option is uh, have no moving parts uh, on the spacecraft uh, and use uh, uh, gas jets for, for attitude control. And that's what the Gaia mission uh, uses. Uh, another one uh, that, uh, the, that some folks have been uh, looking at, but I don't think has actually ever flown, uh, is, to, uh, uh, is to have a spacecraft with, um, uh, with, uh, uh, where the mechanical uh, pieces that are moving uh, are physically disconnected uh, from your optical payload. And then they're, you know, they're, they're linked with electromagnets and things like that to, to, to uh, keep the positions in place. And then, of course, the most extreme version are the drag-free spacecraft used for things like LISA and, and, and things like that. Uh, and a number of uh, GRACE and, you know, uh, the, the gravity missions uh, are, are doing that. Oh, the other, uh, the other type of uh, noise, of course, uh, is from things in low Earth orbit. Uh, things, uh, low Earth orbit is, is not a very benign environment uh, because especially if uh, um, the spacecraft goes in and out of uh, Earth's shadow, when the sun uh, shines on it, uh, stops shining on it, basically, there's a significant thermal shock. 
So the other topic I'll talk about is um, uh, the life uh, uh, using redundancy uh, to improve the reliability of, of, of the lasers that, that we used on SIM. Uh, so SIM was a class AV mission uh, with the five-year primary mission with the consumables uh, designed to last 10 years. So it's between five and 10 years. Um, and SIM uh, used a, you know, an NPRO laser at 1.3 microns uh, for its metrology. And, uh, and, for, and NASA and JPL has a lifetime requirement that the laser would be good for three sigma over five years and there would be a spare. So that means that uh, the laser had to have a 99.7% probability of lasting for five years, plus maybe two years while it's on the ground uh, undergoing testing. And, uh, and so, uh, so we started looking into uh, reliability issues around 2004 to 2007. And, uh, and part of the reason was that the JPL had flew an NPRO laser uh, before that, a couple of years before that, on an FTS instrument, a uh, 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 Fourier transform spectrometer, uh, Earth science uh, in, in instrument, and that unit failed after two years in space. And so, uh, so we looked a lot at, uh, at laser pump diode lifetimes and basically uh, and looked at uh, uh, how to use redundancy to, uh, uh, to um, uh, increase the lifetime and, and, and reliability. So, uh, so of course, uh, you know, the, the, um, our, uh, w the SIM laser was at 1.3 microns, so it was outside of the silicon, uh, so the silicon detectors wouldn't be able to detect it, looking at starlight, so we wouldn't have to worry about scattered light from the metrology system. And uh, we needed about one watt of pump power. And, um, and uh, we would get a, a, about 200 milliwatts of, of 1.3 micron out. And so uh, a lot of the life, laser diode lifetimes have mean time to failure of about 10 years, 100,000 hours. Uh, but of course, that means that there's a 50% probability that it'll fail in 10 years. And, uh, and so, uh, uh, and of course, uh, the probability of failure uh, in five years is much larger than 0.3%. And so, um, uh, so, so basically, we needed, uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, the, the conventional uh, uh, diode pump, uh, which probably would last five years, but you know, but in terms of having just a, a very low probability of of, uh, of failing in five years was was not good enough. And so, um, so we looked into uh, how, how we can uh, increase that. So, so the um, the. The, the plot on the upper right is sort of a generic plot of, uh, of, of, of semiconductor devices. Uh, basically, there's an infant mortality at the beginning, and then there's sort of random failures, and then there's, you know, when basically things wear out at the end. And so you can screen for infant mortality with testing, uh, and usually if you're talking about um, uh, things that lasting a long time, you never get down to this region. You're spending most of your time in here. And so... Um, uh, so, uh, basically, uh, there's a, uh, there's the, the folks uh, looking at semiconductor reliability have this formula, the, there's this model uh, for, basically, they use it for, for accelerated lifetime testing. And so, basically, uh, the lifetime uh, of the device is, uh, is proportional to this, where uh, the, the, these two numbers are determined by, by testing. And so, uh, uh, so essentially, uh, uh, you know, uh, folks have uh, tested laser diodes, uh, basically, uh, you know, uh, in terms of uh, long lifetime tests, but just for the telecom industry. And, uh, and you know, this one, uh, the activation energy 
uh, for most laser diodes is around seven tenths of an electron volt. And so, uh, so basically, uh, you know, this, uh, this is used for, for, for testing purposes, uh, but it also uh, gives you some insight as to how to make the lasers last longer. And, um, and so, um, so there are a number of steps. Uh, uh, one is, uh, of course, using multiple laser diodes. Um, and uh, uh, basically, you have to operate the lasers either in parallel or in sequence. As one fails, you turn another one on uh, with about a 90-year mean time to failure, in, uh, you know, increase from, from the 10 years that, that most of the diodes are, are, are rated at. Um, and so it, it turns out that, uh, that the, the, the simplest way to do that is to run the laser at low, low, lower power. And uh, the, um, that model that in the equation that we showed before basically is that in terms of the total number of photons you get out of the laser diode, you get more photons, uh, you know, total lifetime photons before it fails uh, by operating it below its rated uh, nominal rating. And, um, and so, uh, so they basically, that's one way of doing. Of course, uh, you know, with, at that time, uh, back in 2007, uh, you know, things are, of course, improved quite a bit now. Uh, that meant that we had to use multiple uh, laser diodes to pump, and it was uh, much more efficient. Or we had to have far fewer laser diodes if we pump, uh, if we ran all of them at lower power rather than running one until it failed and then switching to the next one. And um, so. Um, uh, so the next is, you know, uh, and of course, fortunately, um, uh, it's, uh, it's fairly straightforward to do that. The, the NPRO laser basically has a, a YAG crystal, and you feed the pump in uh, that way, and then the, the laser light comes out uh, uh, in that direction. And, uh, and just to, uh, to, to move it a little bit ahead, uh, basically, uh, the beam is, uh, uh, is sort of comes to a focus here, uh, and then it spreads out. And so this is the, 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 um, the, um, the red lines basically is the outline of, of, the, uh, 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 of the laser, and then the blue line is how we pump. And of course, uh, this is single mode in, in, in red, uh, and, um, and since we're uh, pumping it with multiple lasers, it's got to be multi-mode going in for the pump. And so, uh, you know, we get most of the OLAP, the, the absorption depth is about four millimeters in the YAG for the, ADA, for the pump beam. And so basically we go in uh, with a much larger, uh, I think the, the laser is somewhere uh, coming out between 50 and 100 microns in diameter at this point, and we're pumping in going at 200 microns. So uh, we're wasting a lot of light here, but basically over here, and most of this uh, overlap is, uh, most of the pumping is basically occurring uh, not right at the um, not right at the entrance, but but basically further on in, in, into the crystal. And so we looked at a number of different ways of doing it, and we finally uh, decided to, to use uh, six uh, single mode lasers, and then there would be a beam combiner, uh, a, a fiber beam combiner, uh, and um, and and basically there would be a multi mode fiber that basically would be then re, re, re imaged uh, onto the front of that uh, YAG crystal. And so, um, so basically, uh, we, you know, part of the reason for doing this is that, uh, that, uh, that with, with, with a fiber combiner, you didn't have to worry about alignment. I mean, once, once, uh, once it's attached, once the fibers are attached, uh, you don't have to worry about uh, uh, further alignment. 
And so in summary, basically, in building optical instruments for space, one should keep in mind, of course, the, the big thing is the launch loads, uh, you know, uh, and in particular, uh, the, uh, the flexure mounts that are used to, uh, to, uh, to isolate stresses between things that have very different uh, thermal uh, coefficients of expansions. Uh, very often, they have very high mechanical cues. Uh, and uh, you've got to be aware of that or else, you know, uh, those high cues can result in very high g-forces uh, on, on the optical elements. And, uh, but on the other hand, once you get into space, uh, things are very quiet. And of course, that's probably one of the reasons why you want to go into space for these very high uh, stability clocks. And of course, the other part is thermal control. Uh, if you're not in low Earth orbit, thermal control is, is a lot easier in space than, than in the lab. Um, although um, it turns out that the thermal modeling is not quite as good as one would hope, uh, Gaia uh, is, a, is, a, is, an, uh, is, a, is one example where uh, they had originally designed the, um, the optical assembly to be stable to 30 microkelvin, and uh, when they got on orbit, it was only good to one millikelvin. So things were off by quite a bit. Uh, they're not sure why. But, uh, but still, I mean, something like that is, uh, you know, uh, and that was, uh, th there wasn't too much uh, active thermal control, but still. Um, but if you're out of uh, LEO, things are, are in general much more stable uh, than, than, you can, uh, than you can get um, um, in, in, in the lab. So, and then uh, the last point is that for active components, uh, there, there are a lot of, uh, there are many ways of, of using redundancy to increase lifetime. Uh, to, and so, uh, you know, for a three sigma uh, a failure in five years, and then a full redundant, uh, uh, a full, basically the mean time to failure for that is really many, many decades. So, okay, and that's pretty much it. Thank you.